Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, you're listening to Q, the podcast from Monday, August the 17th. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. How good is your mask game these days? Are you at the point where you are coordinating your choice of mask with with your outfit choice for the day? My first guest on the show is way ahead of you. He has been wearing his own masks on stage long before masks were an everyday accessory. His name's Orville Peck. He is a mysterious country singer uh, who's really a tremendous um, song, songwriter and vocalist. I don't mean to harp on the the mask thing. Really, you got to listen to his voice and his craft. He has a new EP called Show Pony, and we talked about challenging some of the stereotypes that people might associate with country music, digging deeper, and really opening up. He sort of described this this EP, I think, as a as a window into what's to come. So lots going on with Orville Peck. He's up first. Then I hope you know this feeling. I hope you know this feeling. You try something for the very first time and you absolutely knock it out of the park. Isn't that what we all wish for? That is what happened to Raven Leilani. She has written her first book and it's exploded. It's a must read for the summer. It became a New York Times bestseller. People are raving about it. It's called Luster. I tore through it. Uh, It is about this young black woman who is finding her way um, as a person, as an artist through her relationship with this older white man who is married and in an open relationship. Ooh. It's very, uh, very sexy and funny and dark and complicated, and I'll talk to Raven about all of that. And then on the completely other end of the literary spectrum from the uh, very sexy novel Luster, you've got Dr. Seuss. Don't we all love Dr. Seuss? Well, Kathy Goldsmith was uh, Dr. Seuss's art director and publisher for many, many years, and she is responsible for bringing an unpublished manuscript by Dr. Seuss to life. It was sort of left in this in this box. Uh, and and she'll tell you all about, or really she'll tell Tom Power, but, but you really all about uncovering that box and bringing new old Dr. Seuss to life. Okay, one fish, two fish, red fish, don't go anywhere. Show starts now. From 2018, that is Big Sky, the song that introduced the world to Orville Peck. Orville is a really interesting musician who's full of contradictions. He's super popular and super mysterious all at the same time. He's also super memorable for a lot of stuff, including this deep melodic drawl and also for wearing a fringed mask everywhere he goes. Orville dropped by Q for the first time last year, and since then, he's just gotten bigger and better. He was spotted at the Grammys alongside the likes of Diplo and Lil Nas X. He was on the cover of British GQ. The New York Times did a big piece on him. And now he's dropped this. 
They say Paris is dead Lived through London Drank through Memphis The things you live by Were once just a guess And there ain't no glory in the West Orville Peck with No Glory in the West. That song is from his new EP, Show Pony. We caught up to talk about the release and where he fits in the long tradition of storytelling in country music. We started our chat by digging a bit deeper into Orville's thoughts on the song you're listening to right now, No Glory in the West. Glory in the West is, uh, it's sort of like the accompanying sister song to Summertime, the another song on the EP. Catch my surprise and chasing the horizon. Nothing holds me down. Uh, where summertime is kind of about uh, biding your time and uh, you know holding on to hope uh, and kind of the positive side of that. Uh, <clears throat> no Glory in the West is sort of like a confessional that um is kind of the antithesis to that where sometimes hope and holding on to things and waiting for something that you're working hard for can be really uh disheartening and that you know the road towards that can be uh really difficult so your first album was called pony this ep is called show pony that we're talking about now is there a a relationship there yeah it's kind of like uh, I've been <laughs> I've been joking that Show Pony is kind of like the the middle sister uh, between Pony and what the next album will be. Uh, <laughs> you know, like Show, Show Pony is definitely an evolution of what Pony was in a sense. Uh, and in in another way, it also has songs that maybe could have existed on Pony as well. I think, uh, you know, with regards to obviously the connection and the title, uh, I kind of feel like. Show Pony, it's it's now, you know, the it's still got it's got like ribbons in its hair and it's had its mane curled and it's kind of like all been it's been like judged up a bit, but at the end of the day it's still kind of like the sad little pony. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's kind of like the the image that comes to mind with uh the CP. But I do honestly believe that, you know, there's uh I think with my lyrics uh, and my writing on this EP, you know, I, I felt like I had a really big boost of encouragement in in the confidence to kind of go further with what I did on Pony and not really hold back, you know, and I think I've, writ- I've written some of my most like personal songs for this EP. Um, yeah, just kind of tried to delve deeper, I guess. What's one that comes to mind when you say you're, you've written some of your most most personal songs? I'm thinking of kids, but what comes to mind for you? For sure, kids. Yeah, that's, uh, it's funny. That's kind of like the secret favorite song for me on the EP. Yeah, I hear a different openness, I think, on this song than, than I've, I've heard from you before. And let's, let's play a little bit of it now. This is some, some kids. Never really felt this world Haystack boy and dust cake girl But I, I know we never tried Passing the days away Dare me on a dime to say that we had everything we need. Running out into the night, 
Starry boots and open eyes, yeah you Told me to shut my mouth And to my surprise Neither one of us has died so that's that's a bit of kids uh, from Orville Peck's new EP. It's called Show Pony. Tell me more about it. I, I've been keeping journals since I was like 15 years old. I have, you know, just endless amounts of notebooks with, you know, like lyrics and all kinds of stuff that I've been, you know, keeping since I was a kid. Uh, and the song Kids is obviously about, um, you know, me when I was a teenager. And uh, I unfortunately lost... Uh, a few friends when I was really young Um, uh, and I guess it's kind of a song about survivor's guilt in a a way not to get too heavy but uh, which is something that I'd never realized that I was actually struggling with for many many years you know like 15 years essentially of kind of not having addressed that and so that's kind of what that song is and uh, it's kind of like you know I think it's a sweet cathartic song for me to have written because you know <laughs> people who know I'm not and not, I'm not the most easily kind of like open person I suppose and you know I, I really try to I guess push that side of myself in my songwriting. Um, I want to musically change gears a little bit with with another song from the from the EP this one is uh well it's fancy. Here's your one chance fancy don't let me down Chance fancy don't let me down. Lord, forgive me for what I do. But if you are now, well, it's up to you. And don't let me down now. Your mom's gonna move you uptown. So that's a bit of fancy off the new EP from my guest Orville Peck. That song was originally recorded by Bobby Gentry, famously covered by Reba McIntyre. It's also a drag anthem. I'm so glad that you covered it. Why did you want to? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I've kind of had an obsession with that song since I was a kid. Uh, I originally first heard the Reba version. I remember it all very well. Looking back, it was the summer I turned 18. We lived in a one-room run-down shack on the outskirts of New Orleans. I don't know, something really struck me about the storytelling aspect of it, the, the drama of it, but also, you know, the kind of heartbreaking sincerity of it which is kind of my favorite thing about country music in general is when those things collide and then you know as I got older I, I, I discovered Bobby Gentry and I was such a you know I became such a huge fan of Bobby Gentry and I was so thrilled to find out that she had written that song and you know her version has this whole other feel to it as well you know here's your one chance fancy don't let me down here's your one chance fancy don't let me down so, you know it has a kind of very atmospheric, almost like beat poet 60s feel to it, uh, which is, you know, and it totally transports you to like a different version of that song. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do a studio version of my own for this EP because I think it's uh, very important to continue the the history of people covering that song, I, I suppose. And I felt like I wanted to, pay tribute to the Bobby version. So I kind of have a little bit of like bongos in there and, and things like that. And then I wanted to also pay tribute to the Reba version and then so give it like a kind of rock feel at parts. And then I wanted to obviously put my own twist on it. 
um, and you know give it kind of a a dark sound and a, and a, also kind of give it a, a new queer perspective and change the pronouns up a little bit. All kind of in the hopes that you know maybe in in ten years from now someone else will cover it and put their own spin on it, and you know that song can continue to have like this beautiful career that it seems to have had. It's actually the 50 year anniversary of that song this year as well. Oh, that's really cool. I, yeah. so the, the song is about this, this person who's being encouraged by her, her mama in the original song to do something that she doesn't want to do um, to make money and to, to rise above her station. Um, and I was just wondering if that idea of having to make a compromise in order to find a better life is something that resonated with you personally. Yeah. I mean, you know, I definitely, I've never been in the position that, you know, fancy specifically is necessarily had to go through. Uh, but I think, I think a lot of people can relate as I did to the idea of having to make something out of nothing uh, and sacrifice a part of yourself in order to attain something that you feel like you deserve uh, but there's like a barrier in the way and whether that be poverty or whether that be you know i don't know a disability or or, or whatever it may be or, or or maybe it's purely just uh you know um, kind of bigotry or i mean you know i think a lot of people can relate to that i mean i definitely feel like as a as a as a as a gay man in the in the music industry, especially in the country music industry, I mean, I, I can happily say that I, I I don't do it, but you know, there's definitely been times where I feel like I could have conceded into being anything less than myself out of you know hopes for something better. It's it's I think it's a song that people can anybody could really relate to, and you know, you could tie it into. A particular circumstance but yeah for sure yeah i want to read a quote that i saw in the comment section of of one of your music videos that sort of speaks to what you just just said um the quote says when all this quarantine stuff is over i'm gonna book a ticket to one of orville's shows and if i get the chance to meet him i want to hug him as hard as i can and cry this man single-handedly changed my perception of country music and i respect that what do you make of a comment like that <laughs> Well, I mean, firstly, it's very, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't really ever get tired of hearing things like that because it's, uh, it's very encouraging to me, of, of course, and, you know, and not just in a flattering way, but I suppose in a way that, you know, I never had a narrative that a country wasn't for me. And so I grew up being able to like explore and love this genre that has so much diversity and so many incredible people in it uh and you know to know that somebody didn't get to have that experience with country necessarily or because of a maybe a stigma surrounding it or maybe they just didn't feel it was for them or was uh, they were allowed to participate in it if i can be the person that like opens that door uh and says you know come on in like this is for everybody that makes me feel really good you're listening to Q. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power and uh, talking to Orville Peck about his new EP, which is called Show Pony. I want to play uh, a little word association. Tell me about the first word that comes to mind when I say the name Shania Twain. A legend. <laughs> legend. Is there an emotion that goes along with that as well? Confusion. <laughs> uh, because I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the fact that that's even somebody I have had the chance to meet 
in person, never mind work with on a on a on a song I wrote for them or be in their home or I mean I don't know. It's 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 just it's crazy to me. <laughs> right. So you have a song with Shania on this new new EP. It's called Legends Never Never Die. How did you end up connecting? Uh, I had heard that she was a fan of mine, which is so crazy to say. And and I remember when I heard that, uh, I just like I straight up told the person that they were either lying or misinformed. You know, because hmm. I just didn't believe it. But then I I kept kind of hearing about it, and so I started writing this song with Shania in mind because I knew I always wanted, you know, I always wanted to do a, 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 a you know, some kind of iconic collaboration or, or country duet because that's such a rich, there's such a rich history of that in country music, especially. And I was always waiting for kind of the person that felt right. Um, so I started writing this song with no intention that this would probably ever see the light of day or ever even reach Shania, to be honest. Cut to me at the Grammys this year and uh, in one of the commercial breaks I'm like I can hear someone calling my name like yelling my name out and I, I turn around and Shania Twain in like a full bedazzled kind of rhinestone gown is like charging down the aisle of the of the of the Grammys and she's yelling Orville uh and she kind of lifts me out of my chair and she's like I'm such a big fan and I love your voice and I love the song you wrote for us I can't wait to start working on it I'm you know I think it's so beautiful and I just like levitated, obviously, and I, I don't even know, I don't even know what I I don't even know if I said anything bad. <laughs> just I think I was so dumbfounded, and I actually left the Grammys right after that because I figured that the night couldn't get any better. <laughs> Cut to you know a few months later, and I'm at her ranch in Las Vegas, and we're riding her horses, and you know hanging out and working on the song together. I mean, it's just ultra ultra bizarre. <laughs> wow. So let's have a listen to the song that you created together. This is uh this is Orville Peck and Shania Twain, Legends Never Die. Been going back from my own ways too long. Dragging these doggone days, but each song keeps me rolling along my way. And I pray I I've seen people tugging on the reins Full speed, baby, dust is in the veins A stampede couldn't break me in my stride They want to know why It gets lonesome on the lonesome trails To keep your head up high Because, baby, we've been up all night A classic country duo, one for the books, right? Canadian country royalties, so. Shania Twain and Orville <laughs> Peck with Legends Never Die. That's so fun to hear. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I had such a thrill making that song. If you had to pick one thing that separates Shania's brand of, of country music from, from everyone else's, could you pinpoint what that is? I think, well, the interesting thing about Shania and, and her music is that it, it's, it's all, it's country music, but it spans across so many kind of genres in a way you know i think she conquered pop she conquered country she i mean it's like you know she's one of the most successful artists on the planet and uh, you know it's for a reason because her music is just so incredible hmm. so you connected with shania twain at the grammys last year 
I want to ask you about another thing from the Grammys last year. There was this photo going around um, from backstage of you and Lil Nas X, who uh, people might know from from his song Old Town Road. And he's definitely somebody who challenged the norms in country music, as, as we were talking about before, you know, the, the gatekeepers um, and, and blowing those gates apart. I know that musically you two are very different, but I'm wondering if you feel affected by or, or connected to his success in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> look, I think the, I think the, um, I think this is kind of a battle that all of us are fighting hand in hand in a way in, in, especially in country music. Uh, I absolutely feel connected to it in a sense, because I think that, uh, you know, a win, it's like a win for, for all of us that are kind of trying to find our, our, you know, well-deserved spot at the table, uh, which has kind of been denied to uh, a lot of people for a very long time, especially within country music. And so I think, you know, I absolutely feel immensely proud of him. And uh, he's he's a lovely person too. You know, we've hung out a couple of times and uh, he's, he's, he's just such a cool guy. And he's very, I mean, I feel very like, I got, I know proud of him. It sounds really lame, but you know, I think it's, it's incredible what he's done. No, it's sweet. And and as you're mentioning, like there's been this reckoning that the country music industry and I think that the music industry has been having as, as a whole, um, especially in the wake of the brutal murder of George Floyd. And I know that you delayed the release of your new EP so that um, you could keep things on, focused on the Black Lives Matter movement or to not not take away some focus from from the Black Lives Matter movement. Why was that important to you personally? I mean, it's it's hugely important to me and I think it should be hugely important to everybody. And I didn't want to participate in anything because I felt angry and I felt like my efforts were going to be better put towards seeking justice and, and using my platform at that time to amplify, you know, voices that were more important than mine at the time, uh, I guess is kind of just the honest answer. I know that a lot of us are re- reflecting on on how to do our part um, in fighting anti-black racism. Are there any like personal reflections that that you've got from how much you've been thinking about this? Absolutely. I mean, I think as you know, as white people, I think it is on us to address racism and fight racism. It's not up to the people who are suffering the effects of racism to to catch everybody else up on the subject you know we have a responsibility to educate ourselves to read more books to whatever you got to do uh you know and, and it's and it is a responsibility of every white person unfortunately in this world to whether people like want to admit it or not uh, it's a responsibility that every white person has to go out and actively fight against racism and bigotry i mean it's just simple to me you know it's it's just a no-brainer for me so as as we say goodbye orville um you said a a little bit earlier that that show pony is sort of like the the middle sister i guess between your your explosive (laughs) debut pony and and whatever's coming next can you give me a little sense of what is coming coming next for you uh I'm really excited about it. I've already written a lot of the songs for it. Uh, I've been working on them during quarantine. Um, everything's kind of just like demo stage right now. But, uh, you know, there might be a, another collaboration or two. <clears throat> um, 
And the, I think a lot of the songs for the next album are going to kind of focus on, you know, uh, a bit more of my childhood and things like that, which I don't, you know, I don't talk or sit or, or write about that much as of yet. So it'll kind of be like my going home album, you know, as someone who used to be very afraid of even talking about my feelings, <laughs> to be honest, uh, I've kind of now been become like weirdly addicted to the, to the, to the sensation of, of, uh, of sharing. <laughs> so now I'm like, now I'm like going full tilt, you know, like no one's going to stop me. I'm just going to be like the biggest oversharer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I look, I look forward to hearing that, that overshare album um, and congratulations on, on, on show pony. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure. That was my conversation with Orville Peck. His latest EP is called show pony and it's available now. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. Every summer, there is one book that seems to land on all of the summer reading lists. And this year, it's a novel called Luster. It has captured the attention of people at Vogue, Elle, Harper's Bazaar, tons of other writers, including Zadie Smith and Britt Bennett. Luster is a dark and funny coming-of-age story about Edie. She's a 20-something black woman who starts dating Eric, an older white man in his 40s. Eric is married, but he is in an open relationship. Edie is struggling to get by. And the question of who holds the real power in this relationship makes for a very complicated dynamic. Raven Leilani is the author of Luster, and we caught up about the runaway success of this book, which is her first one ever. In fact, when we spoke, she had just found out her book became a New York Times bestseller, and clearly I was very excited for her. Congratulations. Oh my God, that's Thank amazing. <laughs> Did you ever dream that this would be possible for your first book? That's Not wild. even a little bit. And, and I think part of that is I had really managed expectations around you know, partly because I've spent years kind of writing uh, and trying to get things to stick with literary journals and like kind of working kind of after my main nine to five. And so the grind was a bit, a bit different and, and more private. And I worked in publishing. So I kind of have an, a, a real practical idea of what this generally looks like. So this every literally everything about how this has happened for the book, it has just been I, I can't catch up to it. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I can even process it. <laughs> wow. Well, I, 
I can't say that I'm that surprised because I opened the book and really from the first page, like I fell in love with this character with Edie and 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 just binge read the book. So tell us a little bit about about Edie. Um, Edie is an aspiring artist. Um, she is a painter. She is uh, currently involved with a a man she's met online who is in an open marriage, and the book follows both you know, her relationship with him, uh, her relationship that she develops with his wife and child, but also her pursuit of, of art. Yeah. She's really funny. Um, and she's, uh, she's really, there's, there's a part that, that really made endeared me to her, like within the first few pages where she's getting ready to meet him for the first time. And she is looking at herself in the mirror and she says, you are a desirable woman. You are not a dozen yes. gerbils. You are not a dozen <laughs> gerbils in skin casing. It's yes. so funny. And like, how many times Thank have you. we done that in the mirror? So right? like, yeah. Why did you want to portray her as this kind of like, she's kind of insecure and she's kind of fl- flawed in many ways. Why was that important? It was important for me to, you know, to depict a, a human character with doubt, um, who is fallible, who makes, you know, mistakes and who is sometimes or often wrong about things, right? She wants to be, you know, touched and witnessed and affirmed. And that is that want because she is a a black woman, it comes with a kind of different baggage in terms of how she feels she has to perform. So like there's that too. And, you know, wanting a thing to go well and, you know, a character where I'm not asking the reader to uh, to see her humanity because you particularly like her, but because you you see the humanity in her. Absolutely, I'd love for you to read read us a passage. Um, this is just before Edie and Eric meet each other in person for the first time. Totally. We talk for a month before our schedules align. We try to meet earlier, but things always come up. This is just one way his life is different from mine. There are people who count on him, and sometimes they need him urgently. Between his abrupt cancellations, I realize that I need him too, in a way that makes my dreams delirious expressions of thirst. Long stretches of yellow desert, cathedrals hemmed in dripping moss. By the time we set our first real date, I would have done anything. He wanted to go to Six Flags. It gives us such an indication of your writing. Like you have cathedrals hemmed in dripping moss sort of in the same line as Six Flags. Like it's just the juxtaposition. So what do you want people reading this novel to understand about about Edie, this this young black woman and the relationship that she's embarking on with Eric? I would say that, you know, there are two things that um, guided me as I started this book. And the thing that was guiding me was wanting uh, to depict desire, you know, the kind of unruliness of it, you know, what it what it looks like when it moves you through the world, and and depicting a black woman who has the freedom to do that. Uh, but also, when it when it comes to art, I think I wanted to talk about the the kind of weird and kind of shaggy process of laying claim to that art, especially uh, you know when you're in a body that is because of your environment preoccupied with survival. Hmm. I want to come back to that weird and shaggy art part, but first I want to talk about some of the sex scenes while we're talking about Edie and totally. and Eric because they're so vivid, they're getting so much praise and they like the first one that you write is like a one-page run-on sentence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's unreal. So what was it fun to write first of all? Were those fun it to was write? Extremely fun to write. And I would say honestly like that that is also what guides me when I write is like does it feel fun to me because I think that 
when it doesn't, your reader is going to feel that. Yeah. And at the same time that it's fun, it's also complicated. They have this really um, sometimes dark and maybe even violent um, yes. dynamic and they're, they're messing about with, with power and who holds it. So what, who do you think has the power, I guess, in their, their relationship? I mean, it ebbs and flows, but for sure, the way they start is Eric has the power. Um, you know, he's, he's a much older man. And in fact, it's the power imbalance that excites her and excites him too. I think there is, right, there's like an eroticism to that imbalance. And, and for, for Edie, a person who is who's very much out of control, um, this, this also is, is about control, about the surrender of that control to a person who is more powerful. And, you know, with Eric, you know, who is a white man, like he's kind of allowed to be uh, in the world in a different way, in a different kind of authenticity. Um, and I think that that is, she's intrigued by that and perhaps envious of that and admires that. Um, but I would say like the sex in the book is, you know, I wrote it kind of the only way I, I knew how. And, you know, a lot of the, that first part of the book is Edie actually not having sex which is really fun, also fun to write because you get to play with that tension, that, that buildup of desire. And uh, it was in that long passage where that leads you finally to that moment where they, they get to have sex. You know, like it was important to me that, that the reader feel, you know, the, like the frenzy of it, you know, the frenzy of it and naturally with the clumsiness of it. So yeah, it was important to me to kind of, to write, sex in a way that allowed for you know that contradiction in terms of like what a character wants um but also uh room to for Edie to assert agency in, in what she wants without stigma huh yeah there's a lot of of literary for foreplay i guess in the pa like the pacing for of sure it. yeah it was <laughs> It's really well done. So at at the Thank same, you. you're welcome. At the same time as she's learning how to, um, you know, come come into her own and, and assert her power in this like sexual relationship that she's having. As you mentioned, she's also finding her way um, with identifying as an artist. Uh, you you describe that as a weird yes. and, and shaggy process, the one that you've been through yes. yourself as somebody who's an artist. So when you look back at, at your time of of juggling, uh, doing art and being in school and working, what do you remember mm -hmm. most? To be honest, I remember being exhausted. I, and that is, I think, the most clear uh, parallel to my own life, where she's kind of balancing the demands of, you know, paying the bills and like paying student debt and, you know, um, having food to eat and also working on the thing that feeds you kind of emotionally, working on your art, what that means for what you can make and whether you can make it at all. Um, I wrote Lester while I was in my MFA and that's two years. And I was also working at a publisher full time. And so I would, you know, come home, I would, you know, go to work, I'd go to class and then I'd come home and work. Um, and most of my work, short fiction has been like that. So I wanted to speak to, you know, the way that work when you're juggling the demands of living while trying to make art, the way that that art is a private thing. So, I wanted to I wanted to write about a journey that that includes the the stumbles and, and the failure um, and those you know the the acts of solitude you know <laughs> where the art comes from. Yeah, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Q, and I'm speaking with Raven Leilani about her debut novel Luster. It's a it's a darkly funny coming of age story. It follows 
a character named Edie, a 20-something black woman who's involved in in a relationship with a middle-aged white man who is in an open marriage himself. Edie's finding her way as an artist. Um, she paints. Raven, you paint too. Can you? I do. Yeah. yeah. In the in the novel, we see Edie sort of struggle with calling herself an artist. And, and you described just a moment ago sort of the nonlinear process of, mm-hmm. of working on art, especially when you have to do another job to pay the bills. So when does somebody get mm-hmm. to call themselves an artist? Honestly, I think if you're doing the work, you are an artist, you know, like if you're doing, if you're, I think the art is in the practice of the craft, you know, um, because I'll say like, there are so many projects that I've, that I've done from that state of solitude that no one saw, but were ultimately useful because they got me to the point where I could make the thing that, um, that stuck. Hmm. Another aspect of, of Edie as she's finding her way as an artist is that she's working at this publishing job, or at least for for the beginning part of the book, she's working at this publishing job um, where she isn't fond of one of her colleagues. This is a person named Aria. Yeah. Um, and in a in a passage from your novel, Edie says of Aria, uh, on her first day, she came into the office meek and gorgeous, primed to be a token. Um, this is the the one other black colleague at, at her workplace. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about the dynamic that you wanted to explore between those two young women. So, I mean, when I wrote both of those characters or, you know, when I wrote Aria, my intent was not necessarily to like lampoon her or hold her up in judgment. In fact, I feel like that's my general core tenant of writing is to try and write in a way that is non-judgmental and just kind of offers the humanity and the facts. And I would say of these, you know, of Edie and Aria, they're both trying to survive in an environment that, um, you know, cannot adequately witness them. They, they both are trying to survive in a professional environment that demands a kind of performance from them in order to advance um, as Black women. But they both have very, very different tacks of, of surviving in an environment like that. Yeah, Aria is more, um, you know, she's taken the challenge up and is hyper curated and is, you know, is doing what she can to just get in the room and is also intolerant of like, of Edie's sort of style who, you know, she refuses to, to participate in that. And so I think you just have two black women in a professional space who are both in their own ways trying to survive but, and they both see each other, right? They both see each other's hunger, um, and each other's dogness, but uh, it's just, it's, they both have very different, um, very different tacks of doing it. And both, you know, both are distorting, right? Both demands uh, that, they, that they perform in order to advance, both are, both are distorting and flattening. Well, they discuss something that's super interesting. Arya is talking about their white colleagues, and she says they can afford to be mediocre. We can't. Um, And I think that's a part of privilege that people don't maybe talk about enough where it's like – like if you're part of a privileged group, you can afford to mess up and and not right. feel like you're representing your entire um, race or gender or or, or whatever. And That's I just right. Thought that was so interesting. A lot of I feel like you know black people grow up with the saying you know I, I I heard it from my parents and I think my parents heard it from their parents but you know like twice as good for half as much and in, in to talk about that is to talk about that really razor thin margin of error you know um, that sort of hyper curated, like rigid performance, it, it, it is like a, it's a dehumanizing um, kind of demand. Um, and it is one, right, that it, it doesn't allow for grace, doesn't allow for 
what humans are wont to do, which is to mess up. Hmm. Your book is out at a time where we're seeing this unprecedented um, movement against anti-Black racism and, and police brutality, not to mention the pandemic. How are you processing everything just day to day right now? I mean, it is uh, it is a really strange time. <laughs> it is a really strange time, one, to just to be to be publishing a book, um, to be talking about it. But it's a it's a difficult I think when it first started happening, we were all improvising, all trying to figure out what it was and what to do around it. Um, and there's an element of this pandemic that has has both like separated us and made that connection even more urgent. You know, I haven't seen my mom and I, I honestly don't know how long because I'm, you know, she's upstate. <laughs> um, and we have to, it's a communal effort, right? That we have to, we're all in this together. Um, and it is, it's difficult uh, kind of seeing the, you know, the response to that, that is, um, that is not super communal. Um, but I, but I would say there has right been a reckoning around, you know, black lives. And that, that is like, that's a cyclical thing. You know, I think I, I look to my elders and ask them, is, is this kind of new? Does, because it feels different. It feels a little different this time, you know, the sort of response to it. And they, you know, my, you know, the older people in my family say, yeah, it does feel different. But I would say, you know, this, um, living in a black body in the way that is imperiled. And, you know, this is a lived reality of, of most black people, if not all. And I think the difference is that we have now the technology to see it in a different way. And, you know, to release a book into, um, into this, I think, you know, naturally um, questions come up about, you know, the content in the book. But I, but I would say that, you know, I wrote this, um, as a black woman, about a black woman who moves through the world, right, with a, a body that is imperiled in this way. And, and it, it just so happened that it was released into this climate. And in fact, I could say that that is uh, uh, kind of a sign of, of how much progress we still have to make. You know, some of the scenes that I've written in the book and to have it come out and be as relevant as it is. You know, I would love to point to some of those scenes in the book and say that is a distant thing that doesn't happen anymore. Right, right. Um, I, I understand that your dad uh, passed away from COVID-19 in April before the book came out. And I, he did. I'm really sorry for that loss. First Thank of you. All. Thank you. What do you think that he, he would have said about your book becoming a, oh, a New man. York Times bestseller as of last night? He would just be beside himself, like absolutely beside himself. He knew that the the book was coming out, you know, like I definitely like I'm glad that he at least knew that. But he would really, really love this. He would especially love, you know, like because he's like a New York man through and through. I mean, he, he, he died in Georgia because he moved. And so I feel like coming back, you know, to NYU, kind of making it here and he, he would have been beside himself. And so I feel, I feel really good about that. I feel like I've done him proud, but, you know, of course I, I definitely wish that, you know, he could have been here. And I think that there are a lot of people around the world who are, who are going through that right now, you know, because the, the toll is enormous. It's really globally, it's enormous. Um, and I think, I think 
it's going to take a while for us all to kind of process that loss and, and even more reason for us to kind of lean into this communal effort and kind of do our best to, you know, to deal with this. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go, go through it. And, and at the same time, I just want to say congratulations um, on, on what you've done with this book. It's really wonderful. Thank you. Raven Leilani is the author of Luster. We spoke last week about her debut novel, which is a New York Times bestseller and out everywhere now. Hey, I'm Talia Schlinger in for Tom Power. Here are a couple of stories that caught our eye. TV and film productions in British Columbia are starting up for the first time since COVID hit the province. The industry was at a standstill for months because U.S. studios and B.C. unions were not able to agree on safety protocols. But hey, it looks like they have now. Sony Pictures is one of the first to begin production in the province. Its show The Good Doctor is now greenlit. That decision came after the U.S. company made a deal with the B.C. Council of Film Unions to meet safety requirements. Disney TV Studios has also reached an agreement with the B.C. Council for its series A Million Little Things, Mighty Ducks, Big Sky, and Turner and Hooch. And the Netflix series Midnight Mass is expected to start filming this week after landing on a safety agreement with the local unions. And... In other good news, or at least I think this is really good news, see if you recognize these two voices. Here's where Dion lives. She's my friend because we both know what it's like to have people be jealous of us. Girlfriend. And I must give her snaps for her courageous fashion efforts. Hey, Cher. Dion and I were both named after great singers of the past who now do infomercials. Oh, that takes me back. That's the character Cher, famously played by Alicia Silverstone and best friend Dion in the 1995 cult hit Clueless. And now their story is coming back. But this time, the spotlight is on Dion Davenport, originally played by Stacey Dash. NBC's streaming service Peacock is rebooting the film as a TV series. The untitled comedy series follows Dion after Cher disappears. She's left to figure out the pressures of being the most popular girl in school and unraveling the mystery of what happened to her best friend. This isn't the first reboot of the cult classic. In 1996, a spin-off TV series of the movie ran for three seasons. And in 2018, a musical version of the popular movie, movie debuted off-Broadway. While there's a lot of excitement around the development of the new, new storyline, there's no word yet on when the series will air, which is way harsh, Ty. Hey, I'm Talia Schlinger, in for Tom Power. So when was the last time you read a book again and again, like 27 times in a week? Probably doesn't happen much when you're an adult, unless you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. But maybe you can remember being totally fixated on one book when you were a kid, memorizing rhymes, savoring every page of bright illustrations. And I bet some of the books in your rotation might have been The Cat in the Hat, Green Eggs and Ham, The Lorax. All those classics by Ted Geisel, who you might know better as Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss died in 1991, but seven years ago, his former assistant discovered a box of his files. And it had in it two unpublished manuscripts. The first one came out a few years ago. 
called What Pet Should I Get? And another book came to life thanks to a woman named Kathy Goldsmith. She was Dr. Seuss's art director and publisher for many years. The second book is called Dr. Seuss's Horse Museum, and it's all about creating and looking at art, something Dr. Seuss was really passionate about. Tom Power spoke with Kathy Goldsmith when Dr. Seuss's Horse Museum was released last fall, and he started by asking Kathy about the moment that changed her whole career. Tell me about the first time you met Dr. Seuss. Oh, well, I met Dr. Seuss, I believe it was either 1977 or 1978, so a long time ago. Uh, I was 28 at the time. He was, I believe, 72, and clearly the most famous person I had ever met in my entire (laughs) life, then or now. What, What was he like? What was your first impression of him? Well, my first impression was, first of all, he's very tall. Is that so? uh, Yes, he was well over six feet tall. And I stand about 5'1", so he was both very famous and very tall. (laughs) So you you started working for him, right? You were his his art director? Well, when I first met him, I was a senior designer there. There was another woman who was the art director, but when I first met him, I was senior designer there. So tell me about some of the work you you did for him. What, what, What did that entail? Well... You know, it's interesting because I always say that that my job was taking care of what he had done and making sure that it came to be to the public the way he wanted it to. Because clearly, the man didn't need an art director. Mm. Um, he, he he was his own art director as well as an art director for many other authors and illustrators over the years. But he had a very clear idea of how he wanted his books to look in terms of color and page layout. And it was my job to make sure that anything I worked on with him happened the way he wanted it to happen. You know, a lot of the really successful and and really talented people I know, uh, Kathy, let me choose the word right, they're a little particular. Is, Is that the case with Dr. Seuss? Absolutely. Yeah, how, and why well, shouldn't they be? <laughs> so I, I agree with you. So I, I hear he was a bit finicky about about colors and the like. Uh, well, when you think about it, you know some of his early works, like Cat in the Hat and Horton Hears a Who, had a limited color palette. They were printed in either two or three, or maybe even four special inks. But around the by 1960, the entire children's industry started publishing books in full color. Mm. And at that point in time, we really got to see what color meant to Dr. Seuss. And his world explodes with color. And you just and you see color in a way that he used color in a way that other people didn't use it. So, yes, he was particular about it. So fast forward to 2013, you get a call from a woman named Claudia Prescott. Claudia. Uh, who's Claudia and what did she tell you? Claudia was Ted's longtime assistant for decades while he was alive. And when he died, she stayed on and became the executive assistant to uh, Ted's widow, Audrey Geisel. And I got a call at my office, and she said to me that they had, as she put it, found a box that had some things in it that she thought Random House would be interested in. Would I come out? And I pretty much hung up on her immediately and went running down the hall to my boss's office and said, we're going to California. (laughs) (laughs) i got to say, this sounds like something out of the Da Vinci Code. Well, it was really interesting to us because he'd been dead for, at that point in time, um, over 20 years, you know, and we thought we knew what was left behind. And in this case, there was one, one box that hadn't been inventoried. That's crazy. Like this, this, this secret, dusty Ark of the Covenant in the back well, the of Dr. Seuss's most of, the, most of the items that were in his office went to his archives at the University of California, San Diego, shortly after he died. I Somehow this one box got detached from everything that left the house and went to the archives and got put in a closet. Tell me about the scene in California when you get there, when you fly in. 
First of all, his house is on the top of a hill called Mount Soledad. You can see north to Los Angeles on a, on a good day. Uh, so we're coming up the hill to the house, and when we get to the house, the trucks from UCSD are already in the driveway. So we've got a very limited time to look at what's in the box. Uh, the contents of the box are were laid out on the dining room table uh, in nice, neat stacks with folders around them, uh, which I think Claudia had probably created. I'm not sure they were in the box that way. So what was interesting for me was to see his originals again because it had been – you know, I hadn't seen them since before he died. And his originals looked very distinctive. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, that scene in, U, in, in E.T. where, you know, the, 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 the CIA and the FBI are all, you know, they have uh, their gloves on and they have the tent set up and they're trying and you have to, a couple of seconds to take E.T. before, you know, they, they get him. It feels like that with this manuscript for Dr. Seuss's work. Not quite. Like that, <laughs> you know, and we were allowed to touch things. Okay. <laughs> so. Right. And so, so the, yeah, the University of California, San Diego is not quite the CIA. But uh, tell me about the moment you laid eyes on this manuscript. Well, the thing is, as I said, because there were a number of different things in the in the box, the question was, which one did you look at first? And since there were a couple of people there, some looked at this folder, some looked at that folder. I actually don't think that Horse Museum was the first folder we looked at, possibly because it wasn't the most complete project we found. And we tended to pay more attention to things like What Pet because it was a bulkier folder, shall we say. How far along was the Horse Museum? Um, not very far, actually. It was the beginning of an idea. There was, I would say, a partial manuscript, probably amounts to maybe half of um, the book as it now stands. And there were probably 10, maybe 11 sketches, but not finished pieces of artwork. Whereas on What Pet Should I Get? We had finished line art. There was no finished art on this book. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking with Kathy Goldsmith. She's Dr. Seuss's former art director and publisher. And what we're talking about is a book that she helped bring to life after an unpublished manuscript was found in 2013. It's now out. It's called Dr. Seuss's Horse Museum. So I want to talk a little bit about how the book ended up being completed and all that stuff. But I got to tell you, I, I read the book last night. Um, I, I know what it's about. But for people who are listening to this, tell us about the concept of the book. Well, I think that what's interesting about this is that it really amounts to the only book we've ever published by Dr. Seuss, which is nonfiction in its orientation. It's not a book in rhyme. It's not lighthearted um, in the sense of being nonsense, rhymes, etc. Uh, it's about the creative process, and it's about how artists and creative people see the world and then how they show us what they've seen. The book looks at artwork, reproduces images of artwork featuring horses, thus the Horse Museum. And there are horses painted by some of the most famous artists of all time, Jackson Pollock, Kandinsky, Seurat, Munch, uh, Picasso. And that was something that was indicated on the manuscripts, right? Yes. Any place that Ted had indicated which work he wanted to talk about, we tried very hard to clear the rights to be able to show that artwork. But at one point, he simply stopped working on the progression of art through the ages and simply said, and everybody that comes after this. And of course, he, <laughs> which, which was sort of okay. Um, but he wrote this manuscript, we believe, in the 1950s. So anything that happened in the art world after that is not in the notes that he left us. And yet, if he were to have finished the book himself today, would certainly have covered 
modern art and things that have happened, you know, more recently than when he worked on this. So we took our cue from what he wrote and used the pieces that he indicated where we could and then where we had to flesh out his manuscript and add the people that happened after that. The editor I worked with and I chose the pieces of art together. And of course, they had to feature a horse. But, you know, we had some guidelines. I tell you what I found, you know, really enjoyable about it, perhaps a little bit embarrassing given that I host a uh, arts show on public radio. But um, the, the book details kind of children going through a museum and they see various depictions of horses by really famous artists. You actually see the work that they made and someone's explaining to you what various definitions of art are through these depictions of horses. I got to tell you, I learned a lot. I'm in my 30s and I learned a lot from reading this book. Well, I'm older than you are by a lot, and I learned some things as well. <laughs> what I think is nice about it is that, and most of that is, is are Ted's own words, was his attempt to make it not scary and make it interesting and fun. Because if you think about it, all children naturally, when they first see crayons or paint, want to pick them up and start filling a page, a blank page with their artwork. And yet, as we get older, we stop doing that, you know, for whatever reason. But it's, I think what he wanted to talk about is, is that that's the beginning of being, of being an artist, of being, you know, somebody who has something to say about the world around them. You know, I really loved learning what, learning a little bit more about abstract art and cubism and expressionism. I mean, these were things that I kind of nodded along with when people would explain them to me, but it was nice getting sort of a, a definition of them. But perhaps my favorite thing I learned from the book is, uh, at one point, I'll read from the book. It says, looking at art and thinking about it is fun. There's no right or wrong way to do it, which I guess is a good reminder for everyone, don't you think? I think so. And I, I do think it's part of the empowerment message of the book. But I also think it's it's consistent with, you know, when Ted wrote The Cat in the Hat, his, his intent was to bring children into the world of reading and make it fun and interesting and easy. And I think this is just him once again extending a hand to children and to adults to say, here's something else that you, know, you might find interesting. So I got to ask, it's a great book. It was written in the 1950s or started in the 50s. Why do you think it remained unpublished? I think at the time, I think it was written before he wrote The Cat in the Hat. Cat in the Hat was published in 1957, as was How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So it was started, you know, right before a very prolific time in his life, uh, which took him in a different direction. And I think he got preoccupied with that direction. But I also wonder, actually, when I think about it, whether we would have published that this book in 1957, say arbitrarily, you know, a year. Really? Um, well, simply because he wasn't the he he wasn't the famous Dr. Seuss that we know him today to be. He was about to become that person um, where everybody knew his name and they knew what books he wrote. But he hadn't written a lot of those books yet. He hadn't, you know, Cat in the Hat what hadn't come out when he wrote this. Grinch hadn't come out. One Fish, Two Fish hadn't come out. Green Eggs and Ham hadn't come out. None of those books had been published yet. So I think it was probably would have been a riskier book to publish in those days than it is today. Dr. Seuss illustrated many of his books, but I can't imagine what a joy this must have been. You chose Andrew Joyner to illustrate Dr. Seuss's Horse Museum. Yes, and I, I think he did a wonderful job. He certainly did. But what a dream it must be for an illustrator to get to illustrate Dr. Seuss's work. You know, the the funny thing was is that we spent a very long time in-house talking about who, in point of fact, would illustrate this book because we needed somebody who 
would be creative and inventive, but also respectful of the fact that it wasn't entirely their project. It was a Dr. Seuss project that they had to be a part of, but it, they couldn't they couldn't deviate from the image that that had started with you know Ted in Ted's head. At the time, we had seen some of Andrew's work. He was doing new illustrations for an out-of-print bright and early book for us called The Hair Book, which had originally been illustrated by the wonderful Roy McKee, but which had gone out of print because some of its illustrations were came to be over the years politically incorrect, I think is the way you would put it. Um, So it had been gone for a couple of years, but we thought that with some, you know, very minor tinkering with the text, but new illustrations, it could come back into a healthy life again. And so we had chosen Andrew to re-illustrate it. So we were starting to see how wonderful his illustrations were when he started working on our sister imprint, Schwartz and Wade, on a book that he wrote and illustrated himself called The Pink Hat, where we got to see the thinking part of Andrew, not just the creative fun part of him, but the thinking part. And it suddenly became clear to us that he might be the partner Mm. we'd been looking for. How did he respond when you called him to ask him? Well, he lives in Australia, first of all, ah. so that, that's number one. So we had never met him. In point of fact, I did not meet him until the day the book was published this year when he came to the United States. I mean, yeah. we spoke on the phone and we emailed a lot, but we'd never met. I think he was flabbergasted, quite truthfully. Happily, he had grown up on Dr. Seuss, who is, I'm not going to say as important in Australia as he is here, but probably almost so. So he was familiar, but the first thing he did when we asked him you know, to maybe work with us on this was to go back in and read it all over again, Mm. which I thought was interesting. And he did a lot of research. He came at, because he did some samples for us, he came at those well-prepared, shall we say. You know, I I realized too, looking back at Dr. Seuss's work as an adult, you know, this is stuff I read when I was a kid sort of over and over and over again. Um, And it's interesting looking at the man, you know, behind these uh, Fear Famous books. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but Dr. Seuss was an artist in his own right, he had sort of a secret life as an artist, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. He published a book called The Secret Art of Dr. Seuss, which was his paintings, his lithographs, anything that wasn't a book illustration. Was he, was he frustrated by that? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, um, but I didn't know he, has, he had such a great love of art and, and art history. Well, I think, I think he'd been drawing from the time he was a child. Um, I am told that he drew on the walls of his, the house he grew up in in Springfield, Massachusetts. So, Well, it's so nice to have a new work from him. Um, but I should say, in addition to Dr. Seuss's Horse Museum having a lot of meaning to uh, folks who are fans of his and grew up with his books, it must have a meaning for you. This is the last book you worked on before retiring earlier this year. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, it sort of felt like time to me. I'd been at Random House since 1977, so that's a long time. And I actually stayed a couple of months longer just to make sure this book was was happily finished. I looked at the second set of color proofs and then thought, okay, I can do this now. So I mean, it must have some special meaning for you, hey? Well, it, it does. But it's also, you know, it's also... It was a project that once I got started, I didn't want to go until it was until it was happily, you know, formed. So I'm I'm glad I got to see that. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really nice to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me talk to you today. How sweet is that? Kathy Goldsmith is Dr. Seuss's longtime art director and publisher. She's also the former president and publisher of Beginner Books, which is part of Random House. She was talking about the book Dr. Seuss's Horse Museum, which is out now. And I finally found the joke. It's one fish, two fish, red fish, cue fish. Okay. 
Hey, that's it for Q the podcast today. Tom Power is back with you tomorrow. He'll be talking to Tim McGraw, country music superstar. Tim McGraw has been thinking a whole lot about how to thank his fans. You'll find out what he decided on, whether you're all getting bouquets of flowers uh, in, in the mail, something like that. I don't know. No, it's a musical thanks of sorts, and he'll tell Tom Power about it. Thanks so much to Tom for letting me sit in for these past couple weeks. It has been a lot of fun. I'm Talia Schlinger, and thanks for listening to Q. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.